You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. And we'll begin this morning in the book of Revelation. We'll be reading chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. When I'm finished reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Revelation 5, 6 through 10. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Now turn with me to 1 Samuel, and we'll read all of chapter 29. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Apek. The Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, And David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become, he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not, that, is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. So go back now and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your lord who came with you. And start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come now again to your word and we ask that you would 
speak to us from your word, that you would change us by your word, that you help us to be a people who trust your word above all things um, live and, and seek to live in the light of your word. In your name we pray, amen. There is an interesting thing, a unique thing about college football. Um, and that thing is, is that the best sort of game, the game that everyone wants to see, even if at the end of the day it's your favorite team and you'd like them to, um, you'd like them to win, there, there is a moment, um, except for when Navy plays, uh, when you're watching, whatever game you're watching, whoever you're rooting for, um, when it comes down to the last two minutes of the fourth quarter and your team is down by four or the other team is down by four and they get the ball, there is at least a small inkling in all of us that wants to see how this thing is going to play out and even hopes for the team that's finally going to have the ball in the last minute could win. Could win against all odds, starting with the ball on the two-yard line, driving the length of the field, eating up the clock, um, and making their way all the way into the end zone and finally finishing the game and winning. There is something powerful. There is something unique um, and that frankly can only be learned through the experience of you're down by four, you've got two minutes left, maybe a minute and a half left, and you're sitting with your feet in your own end zone and you've got to gr- grind it out all the way down the field just, just in the face of all, against all odds, pushing forward and simply doing the right thing again and again and again and again all the way down the field. This is why all of you should love college football. There's something glorious and, frankly, as we're going to see again today in this text, um, right up God's alley about that particular set of circumstances. Um, We come now to chapter 29. We're nearing the very end of 1 Samuel. Um, We come now to a great division in the narrative. If this was a movie... Um, if there was a movie or a television episode or something like that, what you would see is this, um, what's unfolding between chapter 28 and chapter 30, um, 31 is this kind of cut scene back and forth, back and forth, back and forth uh, between what's happening with David and what's happening with Saul, which is to tell us that one of the things we should be paying attention to in the text, um, just even um, being attuned to how this story unfolds over the next few chapters, um, one of the things that, that God wants us to see in this text is this constant contrast between what's going on with Saul, what God's doing with Saul, how Saul is responding to what God is doing, and how um, what God is doing with David, and how David is responding to what God is doing. Um, the narrative itself and how it's laid out clues us in to what we should be paying attention to as we head into these final weeks in 1 Samuel before turning to, you guessed it, 2 Samuel. And so, um, I want to first, as we do most weeks, I want to walk through and draw, out, draw our attention to a handful of things that happened in this narrative. Um, and then I want to draw one particular thing out for us um, in, in the hopes that we can feel something of the tension or the dilemma or the pressure that's at the heart of what's going on in this text. And then we're going to look at one thing. One point of glorious application today um, that that I pray that God would help us to be a people who live in the light of this text in this particular way that we'll get to in a minute. 
So first, we've come to this sort of division, this, this split in the narrative as we're watching two people encounter the work of God in two very different ways. The Philistines have begun to gather at Aphek um, to fight against Israel. And they've gathered, at least according to this text, in the thousands to do so. Um, they've gathered in the thousands, and it clues us in um, in chapter 28. Saul saw this, um, this army gathering against Israel and he freaked out and panicked and went and talked to a witch. Which, yeah. Okay. And so um, they are gathering there at Aphek. It's interesting. This is all um, the co- whole uh, correlation between Aphek and Jezreel. If you remember back, um, this would have occurred several years ago, perhaps even decades ago, um, in the narrative of 1 Samuel, um, as, uh, uh, as Israel faces defeat. Um, it had the, the old model of Israel um, went down into the grave at the beginning of 1 Samuel at Aphek and Jezreel. Um, it was there that the armies of Israel were conquered. It was there that the Ark of the Covenant was taken by the Philistines into exile. Um, and it was at that battle that um, the high priestly line was snuffed out and destroyed. If you remember, Eli's sons were killed in battle and Eli himself uh, tumbled over dead upon hearing about the Ark being taken. Um, the interesting thing about what's unfolding right here in this narrative, um, that uh, kind of the focus of the narrative, um, at least for chapters 29 and 31, is going to be on Jezreel and on, on Aphek, on this precise place. I mean, if you think of the narrative of 1 Samuel and where First and 2 Samuel are headed, um, they're headed for this transition from uh, the old kind of mosaic model of Israel um, into the new Davidic model, the, tab- the, the, the shift ultimately from the tabernacle to the temple um, with David's son Solomon, uh, a transformation and a renewal of the kingdom, a transformation and a renewal of Israelite worship. Um, uh, that is where things are headed. And what you had at the beginning of 1 Samuel is the death of Israel. And here what you have um, in, in chapters 28, 29, 30, and 31 is the rebirth, the renewal, a new day of Israel being born. That's where the kind of overarching meta-narrative is headed in these chapters. So um, it, it, if you understand the nature of the Philistines, the Philistines weren't um, kind of one nation state with one king. Um, instead, it was a collection of cities um, all united around kind of the worship of the same set of gods. And, uh, and then each of those cities would have had their own king. It was a collection of city-states. Um, and so when they came together to fight, you had multiple cities then gathering to fight. Achish would have been one of those kings of one of those cities and regions around that city. Um, and so it appears, based on the text, just a description of the text, um, the other kings have gathered. And then in, um, in marches Achish with his men, and particularly Achish with his men, and David and his men. And so here you are as a Philistine soldier ready to go to war with the Hebrews. And now walking through the midst of the camp is David, um, a Hebrew with a group of Hebrews all geared up for battle. And not just any random group of Hebrews geared up for battle, um, but the one that all the songs were written about um, that's on your Spotify playlist that you kind of get geared up for um, when you're going to go to battle. Uh, The one about David uh, the guy who, kill, um, who killed his tens of thousands, whereas Saul, the guy we're fighting, only killed his thousands. And so you could be, um, at first, a little shocked 
um, at second, a little surprised, and at third, a little bit horrified, which is exactly what happens. Um, The Philistine, other generals, the other king, um, the other leaders there, um, they now come to Achish and say, what on earth are you doing? Don't you know who this guy is? Um, Don't you know what he's capable of? Um, Don't you know what he's done? And now we're going to war with Saul, and we know there's this rift between David and Saul, but how much of an opportunity are you giving David now um, as we go out to battle against Saul? If he wants to be immediately uh, reconciled to Saul and immediately brought back into Saul's good graces, all David has to do, which he is highly capable of doing, is turn his men against us and rout us and bring our heads to King Saul. So they see something that Achish doesn't see. I think, I'm going to make this case a little bit later, um, that David would have done, had this scene unfolded, would have done precisely what those generals said he was going to do. Um, And so David... Uh, Achish then hears that from the generals, realizes they want him gone, and so then he comes to David, and I want you to notice a couple of interesting things. Achish says in verse 6, as the Lord lives. You'll notice in your Bibles, hopefully that word Lord is all capitalized, which is to say Achish, a pagan Philistine, Philistine, Philistine king, you never or teen, whatever. Philistine king swears by the name of Yahweh. That's notable. At the very least, what you have is a pagan king who's only been worshiping this set of gods, now acknowledging um, that maybe in addition to his set of gods, there is a true God. Or you potentially have indications that Akesh has been converted to worship the true and living God. Um, we pointed out a few weeks ago that um, the city that Akesh leads is not mentioned in, in the later prophets as cities belonging to Philistia um, that are under the judgment of God, that they are left out of um, the judgment that God brings against the Philistines later in the story of Israel. So we have Akesh here swearing by the Lord and declaring David to have been honest, to have been without guilt. Um, the, uh, the other kings have named David an adversary that he's going to come betray them and become their adversary. Um, he's going to become their Satan, their adversary, same word in Hebrew. Achish says in verse 9, look, and Achish answered David and said, I know that you are blame, as blameless in my sight as an angel of God, as a messenger from God himself. And so you have this weird Irony being developed in the text, and I think it's very, very important we pay attention to. See the contrast. We have a pagan king who swears by Yahweh and declares an innocent man innocent. We have an Israelite king who swears by Yahweh but has declared an innocent man guilty. We have an Israelite king who's dishonored David and driven him from his service. While we have a pagan king has honored David and welcomed him into his service, as the text says, for life. 
We have an Israelite king who sought to destroy and kill David and a pagan king who's gone out of his way to protect David and his men and to provide for them. You have what, by all appearances, is a good pagan king who at the very least is acknowledging Yahweh and his lordship, who is behaving justly, righteously. On the other side, you have the Lord's anointed, Saul, the one who is the rightful king of Israel, behaving murderously, unjustly, and tyrannically. Philistine kings, again, they call David an adversary, a Satan, a devil. And what's interesting in this text, which is one of the things that I think indicates exactly what David would have done had he been pressed to do it, is the ambiguity of David's response to Achish as Achish tells him he has to go. Listen to him in verse 8. David said to Achish, what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Not against you, but against the enemies of my Lord the King. That phrase has been used by David numerous times, in fact, only in the mouth of David to ever refer to Saul. So here's David being a bit coy. Why won't you let me go and fight? Why won't you let me go and fight against the enemies of my Lord the King? Which is David's word for Saul. Um, Another reference, David says, now you'll see what your servant can do. um, As David goes into battle. So then David departs after this back and forth with Achish. He departs with his men early in the morning, returns to the land of the Philistines. So there's the narrative. There's our attention drawn to a handful of things in the narrative. Now I want you to see the dilemma and feel the weight of the dilemma. David is marching to war against Israel with a king who has been honorable and good against the Lord's anointed who is his rival and has been wicked and cruel and in rebellion against God and a tyrant. If David goes to war against Israel, in all likelihood, he destroys any pathway to the throne that God himself has promised him. But he's going to war with his rival. And he's going to war with a rival that you could easily justify saying, this man deserves to die. On the other hand, if David marches with the Philistines to battle, and then in the midst of the battle, turns against the Philistines, turns against Achish, who would likely have been very, very close to him in the battle, and begins to behead Philistine kings, he turns against a man who has behaved righteously and justly, who was sworn by the name of God. Do you see the dilemma that David is in? 
Don't resolve it. Acknowledge it. See it. If you can imagine David walking with his men, <laughs> going to battle, I'm sure his men are saying, why are we doing this to the Philistines? You should have done this in the cave. You should have just done this in the camp. Now we're all morally confused because we're with these pagans and we're going to... I, I, about to have to kill our brothers. What, what in the world's going on? And with each step that David marches with Achish into the Philistine camp, headed against Israel, the people of God, the covenant people of God, his people, against Saul, the anointed of God, the one that you do not lay a hand against, and yet the one who is clearly um, departed from the ways of the Lord, behaving as a tyrant, um, killing priests, um, presuming upon um, his authority, presuming upon his role in the sight of God, presuming to be a kind of God himself, um, a man who's behaving unjustly, unrighteously, but with every step you march with the Philistines into battle, can you just imagine the tension with David? Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? How on earth can I do the right thing? What is the right thing? Can I go against the law of God and raise a hand against the anointed of the Lord? Is it justifiable because the circumstances are such that maybe this is a, a, a place where I can just disobey God and disobey his word? Because it appears like maybe this is how God wants to overcome my enemy Saul. But, but if I raise my hand against the Lord anointed, can I ever cling to then the promises of God given to me in his word? Can you imagine the turmoil with each step along the way? And never mind his men whispering in his ear about where they've come from and what on earth are they doing here? If he fights... As he fights against Israel, he lifts his hand against the Lord's anointed and will find no path to the throne promised to him by God. If he turns on the Philistines, on Achish, he fights against the Lord who has shown him honor and has, at the very least, begun to honor Yahweh and dishonors the office given to him by this king. We must come to see it's vitally important that you come to see our God loves cliffhangers. He loves to lead us in his providence precisely to the place where he can truly press us, where he can push upon us, where he can get us to a place where we have no idea what's the next step. How is this going to work out? How can this be resolved? What on earth's going on? I mean, consider the history of the Bible. I mean, this is the kind of story that God just tells again and again and again and again. It's so repetitive, and yet we always act so surprised in our own lives when we step into situations that seem simply and completely untenable. Like we don't know our way out of them when we look around and go like, why would God ever put me here? Well, God puts you there because he always puts people there. This is what he loves to do. 
He does not like football games where one team just dominates the whole game. He loves to play the game so that it comes down to the last two minutes and you're down by four and you've got the ball and there's one minute left and your running back's hurt and your wide receiver has forgotten all the plays. And then you fumble it and they kick a field goal. I mean, those are, the, those are the stories he loves to tell. He loves to press on his people. Think about it. Abraham going to Mount Moriah um, with his son, and at the very last moment, with the knife lifted, God provides a sacrifice. Israel coming out of Egypt, finally freed from slavery, with water from the Red Sea, Lapping at their toes. And Pharaoh and his army bearing down on them to crush them and destroy them. And then, and only then, opening a way through the Red Sea. Paul, just basically the whole course of Paul's life. <laughs> just like over and over and over and over. If you're Paul, you're like, you know this story. You know it really, really, really well. Question is, are you going to be stoned? Are you going to be lowered out of the city in a basket? Um, are, are you going to be beaten um, with lashes up until the point of almost death? Um, and then, then you'll be rescued, and then you'll be delivered, and then you'll be brought out, and then um, God does glorious things. I mean, this is how God operates. Think about the central story at the heart of all of Scripture. Here comes Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one, the, the one who brings the kingdom of God in glory and majesty to the grave, rejected by his own people. I mean, this is how God tells stories. And I think it's pertinent for us to ask the question, why? Why does God put us in those situations? Why does he bring us into places in our marriage where it just feels like it just can't go on like this anymore? Why does he bring us to places with our finances? And it's just like, there's just no way to like make this number add up to this number. Why does he bring us to places in our jobs? Either where it's like, I'm just going to lose my job. I've lost it. I don't, I, don't, I don't have anywhere to go. Or I've got so much work to do. There's no way I can get this done. Um, into, um, or, or your own health. Whatever the situation is, he constantly presses us, brings us into situations where we're forced to come to terms with, like, I don't know how to go forward. Everything appears to be lost. And you're not there at random. You're there precisely because God loves to put you there. So a perfectly reasonable question that we should ask as those who reflect upon the scriptures is why does God do things that way? He's not a sadist. He's not just taking joy 
and causing you anxiety or pain or panic. He, he does it because there is a thing to be learned in that moment that cannot be learned from a book. You can learn about it. You can see these stories in Scripture again and again and again. You you can see the providence of God and the kindness of God and the redemptive work of God in the midst of what appears to be um, all is lost. I mean, you can hear those stories. You can love those stories. You can can read commentaries, um, volume upon volume upon volume of those stories. Um, But there's only so much you can learn by reading about it and having a sound theology of the providence of God. Um, and there's only so much of that that will do much good. And, but, but, but hear me, you should know and read about all that stuff. It's, it's, I'm not, not degrading um, the study of theology or having a robust view uh, of the providence of God and the redemptive work of God. But persevering faithfulness can only be learned by persevering faithfulness. By watching God show up again and again and again and again. Oh, it's wonderful to know the books. But there is a way in which living out a kind of obedient faithfulness, trusting to his providence moment by moment by moment, every step along the way, on your way into the Philistine camp, where this works its way into your bones like it can no other way. God tells stories like this with his people. He tells stories like this with us individually and with our families and with our church. Because God loves to train us in faithfulness, in trust, in a kind of obedience that doesn't know how it can go on, but just persists in trusting that God will do exactly what he's promised to do, even if we can't imagine how. I want you to notice again the, the, the difference between David and Saul in these chapters. David in this chapter, stepping into a tension, a a pressure, a weight, a confusion, a darkness that that, that I can't imagine finding a way through, um, just keeps taking the next step forward in obedience. And I want you to notice Saul, looking at the armies of of the Philistines, panics. He freaks out. He, He goes to talk to a witch. It's interesting, like, even in reflecting on kind of my own encountering this text, like, how often in Saul's story I've found myself sympathetic to Saul. But realizing how I don't, I don't often see and read stories um, through the lens of God's righteousness, God's holiness, God's way of doing things. 
So I look at Saul and I feel sorry for him. Like he's just wanting a word from God. He's just wanting some help. He's just wanting, um, what do I do? It looks like we're going to get wiped out by the Philistines. I don't know how to go on. He's scrambling anywhere um, to hear from God, to know what he's supposed to do. Um, and then in the end, he goes to a witch. And you kind of go like, well, I mean, he's not getting any words. Like maybe, maybe it made sense for him to go to a witch. But then you remember that, that the law of God strictly forbid it. Faithfulness to God in the midst of pressure and darkness and what looks like a surely lost battle um, looked like almost anything besides what Saul actually did. Which was to rebel against the very words of God. David, it doesn't appear like there is a faithful way forward. But he just keeps stepping forward He just keeps trying to obey God with the thing directly in front of him, refusing to rebel against God, refusing to find his own way out. And this, this is how I pray that we would learn to live. Perhaps you're here today and you're sick. Maybe... You're here today and your marriage appears unsalvageable. Perhaps you're here and your job is on the line or lost. Perhaps you're here and your job is overwhelming. And you know it just can't go on like this anymore. You don't know how to manage the kids anymore. It just looks difficult. There's just some pain, some experience something you're carrying around that you don't know what to do with and everything in front of you appears dark. Do you know that God loves to tell these kinds of stories? And he'll use the sins of others. He'll use the rebellion of others. He'll use the anger of others. He'll use the wickedness of others. He'll use um, just the twistedness of a world still corrupted by sin, sickness, and death. He will wield those things gloriously to teach you to trust him, to teach you to obey him. Another last thing to point out from this story What's interesting in how these two chapters, 29 unfolds into 30, um, is you can imagine like how sticky this situation is and then the relief (laughs) of David and his men being sent home. You can imagine like, okay, we finally stepped in. I've gotten out of that pickle. God and his providence provided a way out. Um, Praise praise to God. Um, And then what happens next? He steps out of a situation where it's on the verge of disaster and he goes back and he steps immediately into a place where there already was disaster. A city burned, wives and children taken, kidnapped by the Amalekites. So this, I'm sure this will make you feel better. (laughs) Some of you think you're in the brink, man. This is as bad as it's going to get. I don't know what God's going to do, how we're going to get out of it. Um, and let me just tell you, you, you haven't even started. <laughs> you're three months into whatever the situation is, and you're thinking, I don't know how this goes on. I'll just wait for six months. But, but here's the thing. What do we do with all of this? 
We don't rebel against the Lord. We don't try to resolve the darkness and the tension on our own. What do we do? The temptation is to live like Saul, to be to feel like you're just battered and cynical and God's a sadist. He just keeps doing this bad stuff to me. Um, And so you're you're just a victim. You're a victim of your circumstances. You're a victim of your difficulties. You're a victim of how hard your life is. You're a victim of how hard your marriage is. You're a victim of how wild your kids are. You're a victim of um, uh, the financial markets. You're a victim of whatever the thing might be. Um, um, And and the second temptation is that we look at all of that and we, um, rather than actually doing things and risking our lives and pushing forward, we just become experts experts on a theology of providence. We just know all about it. We've read all the books. We keep our life completely safe. But here's the reality. As we push out into the world, as we seek to be more and more and more faithful, to bear witness to the good reign of Jesus and the righteousness of God, you will find yourself in these places. And if this is only something that you know about and you're doing everything in your power to keep yourself out of risky and difficult situations, um, that too is a temptation. Um, So what are we to do? We worship. We trust. We obey the God who raises the dead. And we don't do it knowing exactly how this is all going to go. But we do it today at two in the afternoon. Not knowing exactly how everything's going to get fixed, not knowing how God's going to rescue in the midst of this problem or this trouble, not going, not knowing exactly what the redemption of God, the salvation of God will look like in these particular circumstances. You don't know how it's going to end, but what you do know is that God is good and he has placed you right here. And so living right here where your feet are, how do I obey God and trust God right now? What is the next faithful, obedient, trusting thing to do? But what's the next faithful step of obedience I take? Where's the next place, in the next moment? Now, not three months from now, now not not. I'm trying to build some long-term strategy for how you're going to fix all of your problems, but rather, um, right now, in this place, under this pressure, in these circumstances, how do I in my marriage, how do I in my job, how do I with my kids, how do I with my health, how do I with whatever circumstances God has pressed upon you, how do I obey Him and His word Right here. And then right here. And as the questions arise, like how in the world will this get resolved? How in the world will this get fixed? How in the world will my marriage be saved? How in the world will I ever pay the next bill? How in the world am I, um, I going to survive with this much pain? How in the world can I get over that sin against me? Um, in the midst of that, you say, I don't know. But Lord, you do. And so I obey and I trust. And I obey, and I trust. 
and I obey and I trust. This is how God tells stories. This, this is the Christian life. Believing in the grace and the mercy of God given to us in Jesus. Trusting that he is for us in ways that we can hardly imagine. We trust him and we obey him. We trust him and we obey him. We trust him and we obey him.